On the way to church this morning, we drove through uh, a roundabout. And these are becoming more, pop- more popular, but they're not, not terribly common. They are very common in other parts of the world, and some people are quite afraid of them. Um, I kind of like them myself. But I think we all relate a little bit better to the four-way stop. The life of the four-way stop, you know what it's like. The first one to stop is the first one to go. Or if, if it's a tie, then the person on the right gets to go. Or crossway traffic gets ahead of turning traffic. You get the idea. So if you're at a, a four-way stop, and you're the first one, and you stop first, and someone on your left stops after you stop, and they pull in front of you, even turning left, that would be wrong. You'd probably feel surprised somewhat, hit the brakes. You might even get a little upset, some of us. And that would be wrong. But now, now you notice the person in the other vehicle, and it's the mayor, or it's the sheriff. Now it's even worse. There's a person who, who would appreciate order and safety in the city. He should certainly know better. He would want to set an example for people. And so that makes what he did all the more worse. I think I've done that. Have you ever had that type of experience where somebody had a, a, a reasonable and a reasonable expectation that they should have delivered to you? It was very reasonable, nothing above and beyond. It was just normal. Maybe it's a, a service contract, so maybe at a restaurant or something. You had just a reasonable, very normal expectation, and they, they didn't come through. And maybe you've been on the other end, too. Maybe you've had someone have a reasonable and normal expectation of you, and you let them down. I've been on both ends of that. There's a situation very much like this in the Gospel of Luke. And Luke was written to his associate Theophilus. So that Theophilus would be, uh, become more assured in the things that he had been taught. And that's what we want to do here this morning as well. We want to become more assured in the things that we believe. These Gospels are an interesting genre. Clearly, they're history. They record the facts. They give us what happened. But they're more than history. They're a history with with theology embedded into them. Something about God comes out in all of these stories. And so Luke, who's, who's more than just a historian, he's a theologian, but he's a third thing, he's, he's, a, he's a pastor, in effect. He, he wants to challenge people. He wants them to respond to Jesus in some way. And so he is doing this to his disciples, the people and his fellow, uh, the initial readers of his gospel. So in the passage we'll consider today, Luke documents a story in which he highlights a character quality in which he wants 
his disciples to exemplify. Now, in this piece of history, uh, geography plays a little bit of a role. So if you have a map in the back of your Bible uh, of the nation of Israel, you'll see that it's divided into roughly three regions. There's a southern region where Jerusalem is located, and that's called Judea. There's a northern uh, section where Nazareth is located. That's where Jesus grew up, and that's called Galilee. And then there's Samaria in the middle, which is interestingly called Samaria, because the Samaritans live there. And you should also know that uh, the Jewish people, the people of Israel, really found the people of Samaria distasteful. They hated them. They polluted their religion, and their ethnicity was polluted as well. They would never associate with these people. So you're very likely familiar with the first part of Luke. Most people are, because it's the Christmas story, the infant narrative. And after Luke tells that story, he, he tells the stories about Jesus ministering in the northern part of Galilee. And that takes another few chapters. But then Jesus takes this long journey from Galilee down to Jerusalem. Over and over it says he's going to Jerusalem. And while he's on the way, he uses all these journeying experiences to teach his disciples. And that's what we'll see he's doing today in chapter 17. And so as you listen to this little story, uh, keep in mind this question. What is God's expected response from those who receive his goodness? Or put another way, how does God expect people to respond when they experience his goodness? Today we'll consider the passage in chapter 17, and I will convey some adding historical context as we go along. You can follow along in chapter 17, it's verses 11 through 19, and if you have a pew Bible, that's on page 876. So Luke 17, beginning at verse 11 <clears throat> Jesus is, is continuing uh, his journey toward Jerusalem. And he was passing along the valley of Jezreel near the border of Galilee, which is located in the north of Israel, and Samaria, located in the central portion. So in his travels, Jesus is along this border area in the regions where he would naturally find a mixture of Jewish people and Samaritan people. And as Jesus entered a certain village, ten lepers who were Ten men who were lepers met him, but at a distance, of course, because lepers were people with uh, one of various types of skin diseases that could be very contagious and jeopardize society with an epidemic of disease. So lepers were required to keep at a safe distance, sometimes even calling out, unclean, unclean, to warn other people to stay away. Being ceremonially unclean meant that these people were untouchable. They were ostracized from society and outcast from public community. They were quite lonesome people and would likely live out the rest of their days in this way unless they could possibly be pronounced clean by a priest. 
In this case, it seems that these ten leprous men found each other. It seems that though they were ethnically and religiously mismatched, ironically, the skin disease that they shared is actually what made them a little colony together. So there they are in this village between Samaria and Galilee, and they meet Jesus, who is passing through. Now, Jesus could very well have been famous amongst them because Jesus had healed a leper in a different portion of of Galilee. And they would have heard that miracle, and he even touched the leper when he healed him. So these ten men are keenly interested in Jesus coming into this village. And when they see him, they get so excited. They start shouting, all ten of them, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. They referred to him using terms that only his disciples used. Master. They were asking him, Jesus, to heal them of their leprosy. Jesus hears their cry and sees them. But he does not go over to them. He does not touch them. Instead, he stays at a distance and simply tells them, go, show yourself to the priests. Now this seems a little premature. Um, This would have been the precise action to, to take after being healed. So that the priest then could pronounce the leper clean and thus be restored to society. The priest could only pronounce the leper clean. He could never actually heal the leper. They may have wondered if Jesus was skipping a step. Nevertheless, all ten lepers exercised faith in obeying the one they cried out to as master. And so they went on toward the priests. And while they were en route to show themselves to the priests, they were healed. It just happened. They were cleansed somehow while they were obeying Jesus' instructions to go to the priests. Then one of the lepers saw that he was healed. It would have been obvious. He could obviously see the disease in his skin and that now it was gone. When he realized he was cleansed, he turned back and alone he returned to Jesus, praising God with a loud voice. Going through his mind were all that he would enjoy, being with people again, being close to them, touched and being touched. No longer an outcast. And so he falls on his face at Jesus' feet, thanking him profusely and sincerely. Now this man was a Samaritan, a hated Samaritan. That's right, a Samaritan man was at the feet of Jesus and being blessed by him. This is unthinkable to any Jewish mind. Jesus, responding to the Samaritan, now at his feet, praising him, asks three questions. Were there not ten cleansed? Where are the nine, then? 
Was no one else found to return and give glory to God except this foreigner? And then answering directly to the healed Samaritan leper, he said, get up and go your way. Your faith has made you well. So there the narrative pauses. It's a story that reveals some important things about God and some important things about us. The question was, how does God expect his people to respond when they experience his goodness? I've always been fascinated by Jesus' questions. Here's a guy, he's a man, but he's the God-man. He knows more than anyone, understatement. And so when he asks a question, it's often not because he needs information. His questions are, are their rhetorical nature and their insight are so powerful. Were there not ten? Where are the nine? This question comes immediately after, it just falls like a bomb after the statement that the person was a Samaritan. We have to work hard to get into that because we just don't have that, a strong concept of that kind of a thing. Maybe in the civil, during the Civil War times it would get close. But now it's, it's very foreign to us. Where are the nine? Some, someone's missing. Jesus is saying that some people are missing. So Luke has an agenda here. He wants us to be reminded with every story who Jesus is. And so Christologically, this reaffirms that clearly Jesus is God. Only God could cleanse a sinner. And that's what he does. By virtue of this miracle, and doing it from a distance this time, even better. Luke wants us to see also what Jesus does. Jesus cares for the outcast, especially the extremely outcast, even them. He cares about them physically as well as spiritually. And Luke also wants to see us uh, be challenged to respond to Jesus. And here's where we need to really dig deeper, and we will find that what Jesus desires in his disciples is a heart of gratitude. Were there not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? So to do that, let's understand the implications of contracting leprosy. Jesus had healed many people of many things. He he made the lame to walk. Uh, He gave the blind sight. Uh, The lady bent over. He helped the one with the issue of blood, he healed. He healed all sorts of things. And these were sort of medical conditions, so to speak, and, and terrible in their own right. But they didn't cons- have the same sort of implications of social ostracism that leprosy did. It would be close to maybe AIDS today, but worse.
To be ceremonially unclean meant that you were away from society. Leprosy is actually a bacteria that attacks a person's nervous system. And it comes out in uh, affecting their limbs, their skin especially. And there was no cure. And they would often die this way. They became disfigured, some of them. You might remember King Uzziah. He got leprosy in his forehead, and they, they cast him out. And he had to live in a separate house the rest of his life. Naaman had leprosy, and uh, Gehazi contracted it as well. And so there's, there's some examples of the extreme implications of having this disease because you're, you can't be with other people. It was so awful that it was considered a curse from God. Only God could heal this. So behold the shock and the irony in the story. Luke's a master at this. That's very important. We have the leper. The leper is one totally ostracized from society. Stay away. And then we have the Samaritan idea. The Samaritans were despised by the Jews, hated. They would have nothing to do with them. And now you put both of these together. You combine both of these things that the Jewish people could just not tolerate whatsoever. The double ostracism as a Samaritan and a leper combined in one. But who is it that God blesses? Who is it that returns to praise God? Who, who missed it? Where are the nine. This is so, it would be so shocking to a Jew that God would actually bless someone like a leper who's a Samaritan. It's unthinkable. What is Luke doing here? It's not the first time. In, in just chapter 10, there was a, the story of the Good Samaritan, so called. Good Samaritan would be an oxymoron to any Jewish person. There are no good Samaritans. That's just, that just it doesn't happen. But it was exactly that. The, the Jewish leaders, the spiritual leaders of Israel, failed. And it was the good Samaritan who was praised. And here we see this again. We have a Samaritan that is being praised like the jealousy that Paul mentions in Romans and is used to the Jews when the Gentiles become grafted, grafted in. The story, Jesus is, is goading the Jewish nation. They won't recognize him as the Messiah. And this goads them. Good Samaritan, Gentiles, leprous Samaritan, they would not praise him for the goodness that he had showered on them. Clearly, this still happens today. People treat God, the Almighty God, like a beverage can. Snick, guzzle, 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 crumple, toss, repeat. Snick, guzzle, guzzle, crumple, toss.
This is how people treat God whose goodness is showered on us, all of us, all the time. And we're quite thoughtless. And so he asks, where are the nine? Pricking the consciences of his disciples who are listening. And it does the same to us today. So many people receive the grace of God generally, but fall short of embracing salvation in its fullness. So this is what's going on here. Jesus is teaching his disciples along this way, and they come to this village, and it's time for a lab. He takes the lesson on gratitude, and he he puts, puts it on the big screen in a certain village. And so he meets the ten lepers and tells this lesson that God is expecting his people to praise him for his goodness to them. Luke challenges his readers to respond. So, with whom do we identify? Do we identify with the, the nine ungrateful lepers? No, no, don't want to do that. Do you want to identify with a Samaritan leper? You might. But the challenge may not be so obvious to us as it was to them. The conundrum lies in that while they wanted to associate with the one who came back and praised God, they have to struggle with associating with the leper or the Samaritan idea. That's just too hard. And so this is the beauty in Jesus' teaching. He forces us to wrestle with the tension. We want to fit in the crowd of God's people where it's easy. We want to be seen as doing the right thing. This story doesn't give us the option to have our cake and to eat it too. You have to step out of the crowd alone and turn back to Jesus like like the leper did. Perhaps it's still hard to grasp because Samaritans and lepers aren't really in our everyday thinking. What if we put it this way? If we retold the story, and instead of the the leper being a Samaritan, what if we made him uh, a radicalized uh, Palestinian ISIS terrorist? Are you feeling the tension now? And he's the one who comes to Jesus. Who do you want to side with? The nine who go their own way? Or this one? The tension gets us more clear there. How unlikely. We could, we could hardly accept that that would happen. But that makes us deal with the tension. We have someone so unlikely to do that and be meeting with Jesus and while like U.S. swimming heroes go out and make some story up about being robbed. And they're not much of a... They're no longer the heroes. So if, you're, if, if you get this idea, if you're starting to sense the tension then you are understanding this passage. So what is your response to this text? A narrative story generally has the thrust of one idea, and this is it. What is your application? 
What will you do differently based on what the Spirit of God teaches here in Luke 17? How do you resolve the tension? The essential question is, how do you respond when you experience the goodness of God? It's not hard to understand. It's just hard to change. Does your heart melt afresh to what God has done for you? Does it retool your thinking about these untouchable type people that you won't associate with? Some of them might even be in the room. Does it retool your understanding of how God loves these people? People that you want to avoid? I suggest that if you were to take yourself for a walk with this passage alone and and immerse yourself in the, the concepts and the idea of what this leper went through in his life, having having never been hugged perhaps for years, never felt another human touch for who knows how long. I'll read two verses from Leviticus 13 which describe how they were supposed to be treated. The leprous person who has a disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip and cry, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. And if you were to take yourself on this walk and immerse yourself in his situation, empathizing with that loneliness of separation and the ostracism involved in the leprosy and the hopelessness of probably never becoming clean, and then experience the goodness of Jesus, the Master, who, would, who heals you and delivers you from that separation, the ostracism, the hopelessness, into the joy of community and touch and hope. I'm confident that you would weep. The leper who turned back, the Samaritan, did four things says he praises God. He uses a loud voice. He throws himself at Jesus' feet and he thanks him. What are you going to do? Where are the nine? Do you decide to lead your family differently? Understanding how significant is this imperative to praise God for his goodness? He expects it. This is not for super-Christians. This is for every single disciple. Do you give thanks for only tangible things like food and safety and health and stuff for this life while neglecting thankfulness for God's forgiveness. We don't need it only once. We need it every day. His kindness, his goodness. 
All these things spring from the heart of our gracious God. He is a good, good Father. We need to set an example and lead others by rendering to God the praise He deserves. Or do you decide to to become more enthusiastically engaged as an individual worshiper? The leper returned and praised God with a loud voice. Do you sing with a measure of gusto? Or do you kind of sort of hum along? And I'm not making this a performance. This is no moralizing here. But seriously, if we were together for the Super Bowl and you jumped out of your seat, cheering, hands in the air, jumping up and down, when it comes to talking about Jesus week to week, you're falling asleep. I mean, what, what conclusion is drawn? I praise God every time I, I sit in different places in this room, and I praise God every time I sit near someone who sings out and loud enough to be heard. It makes me sing more. Are you content to merely show up? This morning we prayed about, let's not just play church. Let's really do church. Are you content with just merely showing up, or do you, do you seek a greater community with other believers who, who take seriously giving God the glory that he deserves? Because if you do, uh, Phil would remind you that we have uh, at 9 a.m. here every week the half hour of power prayer meeting. And you would be welcome. You would have the opportunity there to thank and praise God for who he is and what he's done. You would uh, hear about what God is doing in people's lives today, this week. You would pray over the Word of God and the people of God. It would help you and your family grow spiritually. It would feed you in a way that you just cannot be fed and grow listening to a sermon. So if you're exercised, you could come at 9 a.m. This morning we took up uh, Psalm 20, some verses in Psalm 20, and I learned uh, a fresh, brand new way to pray. And I'm thrilled. But if you're going to make a change like this, some of you may be thinking, well, what's it going to cost me? Fair question. Anything difficult, anything worth doing often has a cost. You may have to turn back. You may have to change a direction that you're going right now. That's hard. You may have to man up and move, move towards God from where you are. Counter to popular belief, the Christian life is not for sissies. You may have to leave the crowd. The leper did. He was already an outcast from society for his leprosy and for his ethnicity and for his religion. The only community he really had was in this little colony of ten lepers. But he left that 
to give Jesus the honor that he deserved. The one who was already double ostracized, in essence, ostracized himself again in order to be healed of all of this. There's a miracle. So it will cost you something. But what will you gain? Would it be worth it? What's in it for me? Well, I I tell you something that you have to experience to know for sure. But Yahweh, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, is his own reward. Taste and see that the Lord is good. It is definitely worth it. In verse 19, we saw that he said, your faith has made you well. And so he can't be thinking about just the leprosy because the other nine got that. In a special way, he is receiving extra healing. And so it seems clear that the one leper is blessed in a way that the other nine were not. And by returning to praise Jesus, the leper was made well in a way that those who are thoughtlessly enjoying God's goodness cannot be benefited. So fundamentally, I propose that it is spiritually healthy to be a true worshiper of the Lord Jesus. Think of some of the people you know. Those who get this are the most spiritually healthy people that I know. They enjoy, they have joy in every circumstance. They enjoy relationships. They endure hardships with perseverance because they have a heart of gratitude themselves toward God. It comes down to this. It's more than just a relationship. It's, it's a fellowship that is maintained. It's an ongoing fellowship with God which is fostered by by giving God what is his due. It's the most healthy thing that you can do. He is worthy. And this can be each of ours. If, like the thankful leper, you and I, we we can leave the crowd and return to Jesus and alone honor him. So this passage teaches many things, but the big idea is that God expects his people to praise him for the goodness that he gives them. In short, God is calling us out of the nine to be the one. Out of the cozy, status quo, easy street with the nine to be with the lone, ostracized one. Out of the crowd who live relatively thoughtlessly toward the ongoing goodness that God showers on us to be with those ones who have counted the cost and found the Lord Jesus Christ to be so worth worshiping with their whole hearts and their whole soul and their whole mind and with all their strength. Where are the nine? I see this as a community that that energizes people to seek after the Lord and to to follow him as as he leads. And so uh, Ryan was going to come up and play something instrumental for us to just meditate on what the Lord 
what the Spirit of God is telling us to do in light of Luke 17. And when he's, when he's done, the, the children can come up.